Well, good morning, everyone. How are you all doing? You guys are chipper. I like that. That's, that's fun. Right on. So just a little bit of, about me. You know, my name is Joe, and I'm from Bethel, as you've heard. Uh, I am married and have two wonderful kids. My wife, Melanie, and I have been married uh, for seven years this month, and I've got a little boy uh, named Caleb, who is five, and a little girl named Loveland, who is three, and they both keep both of us very busy. And uh, so this morning, I want to talk to you about making room for the next generation. And when we talk about making room, there's, there's two kind of things, you know, when you're in church that you, you think of when you're talking about making room. One is elbow room, right? You, you make sure you've got enough space because you, you don't want to sit too close to the person next to you, right? There's that acceptable gap, right? That's, that's one way that you can think about making room. Another, another way that you can think of making room is, is a packed house where you are uh, having to put your elbows in a little closer and you're getting scooched in a little bit. And that's kind of the type of making room that I want to be talking about with you this morning. So when we talk about making room, it's important that we talk about making room for the next generation. Because the fact of the matter is, is that the, the next generation is not only the future of, of politics and art and society and culture, um, but it's also the future of the church. And, and more than, than just waiting until the future before they, they have an impact, they're actually having a profound impact on the world right now. And when I, I talk about the next generation, I'm not talking about millennials. I myself am a millennial, and uh, I, I'm here to give you license to forget everything that you know about us <laughs> and focus all of your attention on the next generation, Generation Z. Now, uh, a few things right off the bat. Has anyone ever heard of Generation Z before? Anyone? Okay. There's one, one hand over there, right on. The other thing is I know in Canada we say Z, but I feel like Z just flows a little bit better. So if, if you're constantly being distracted by that, I've just aired it. It's out there. I'm going to say Z, all right? Uh, so a few things about hallmarks of Generation Z. The first is that they're generally recognized as those who were born between 1995 and 2010. Researchers actually, a lot of researchers actually believe that this will be the last generation. And not the last generation in a kind of an Armageddon, the world is going to end kind of way, but the last generation in the sense of science and technology, uh, culture are shifting and moving so rapidly and so quickly um, that generational markings are actually fastly becoming obsolete. And so uh, we may not talk about a generation after Generation Z. And so in order to understand the mindset of a Gen Z or a, of someone of this generation, it's important to uh, look at the events in the world that have shaped them. Because all of us at different ages um, and stages of life uh, are shaped by different things in, in culture and different events in the world around us. So, uh, for starters, Gen Z was, was born growing up in a post-9-11 world. Some of them were born after 9-11, or some of them uh, just kind of began to be aware of world events post-9-11. And so they actually haven't grown up not knowing a world without a war on terror. And as such, they've seen a lot of uh, racial division in the world. And so... Uh, remarkably, they've actually responded by uh, being very inclusive and very open and very accepting of others. Uh, 
you know, as a millennial, they, you know, my generation, we grew up with the internet. You know, who remembers dial-up internet? All right, that was, that was my teenage years. Generation Z, while, while millennials may be the first generation to grow up with uh, not knowing a world without internet, uh, Generation Z is a world growing up with not knowing a world without Wi-Fi. You know, I like to joke that, that a Gen Zer is born in the hospital with a smartphone and free Wi-Fi in their hand, right? Uh, but as the world of technology continues to rapidly advance and see rapid changes, uh, what's happened is that, that Gen Z and, and actually our culture as a whole is learning to ad adapt to this. And we're becoming very visual. We're processing information at rapid speeds. In fact, uh, the reason that, that we, we, we do this at such rapid speeds is we have, we're bombarded with so much content every day that we actually create like a filter. And this filter is um, 8.25 seconds. That's our attention span. 8.25 seconds. And to put that into perspective, Bubbles the goldfish has a 9 second attention span. <laughs> so we're, we're 0.75 seconds behind Bubbles. And speaking of living in a visual world, uh, the 2015 Oxford um, Dictionary Word of the Year was this. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I don't text a lot, but I probably send two or three of those a day, right? But the communication and technology aren't the only rapid changes that we have known. They've experienced rapid changes in understanding of family and sexuality and gender. For them, the question is no longer if you're, if you're gay or if you're straight, because labels are divisive, remember? And so instead, the philosophical mantra of the day is that whatever feels good for you at any given moment is good for you. There's actually no need to identify yourself with any, any label. Just, you know, live your life for the moment. Another hallmark is that they're racially diverse, and they, but they don't want to be defined by their, their differences. Instead, they seek community and unity. And a huge way that they do that is through online uh, media. Gen Z is also the largest generation alive today. And so these are just a few, when you think about Generation Z, these are just a few of the realities that shape them. But perhaps the most significant mark of Generation Z and the most concerning for us is that there are what um, James Emery White, a researcher, calls uh, the generation of nuns. And what I mean by the generation of nuns is, is I mean uh, when you hand out statistics and they ask you what religious affiliation you're, you would identify with, they would mark none. And the, the, the uh, nuns are actually the fastest growing religious um, category today. So just to kind of give you a little bit of perspective, I don't know if you can see those numbers there, but in the 1940s, about 5% of the population, and these are American stats, but they will mirror pretty closely here in Canada. About 5% of the generation would say that they have no religious affiliation whatsoever. In 1990... 8.1%. In 2008, the gap is narrowing. They're at 15%. A narrower gap still, 19.3% in 2012. 
In just two years, it goes from 19.3 to 23%. And in 2014. And that last graph there is for adults under 30. 36% would say that they have no religious affiliation whatsoever. And so this, the rise of nuns, you have to understand, is not just people who are like, well, my grandparents are, are Catholic, so I guess I'm Catholic. These are people who, so this isn't saying these are people who aren't, are the only people who aren't Christian, but these are the people who are not feeling a need to identify with any religion. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves is, where are these people going? In fact, um, the Barna Group has concluded that the pattern is indisputable. The younger the generation, the more post-Christian it is. In fact, research suggests that for every one convert to Christianity, there are four post-Christians. And so where are these former Christians going? Nowhere. That's the point. Kathy Lynn Gosman, a researcher, comments, People today aren't merely secularized. They're not thinking about religion and rejecting it. They're not thinking about it at all. See, this is the generation that our kids and our grandkids are growing up in. In fact, my kids, I mentioned earlier, who are five and three, are actually after the last generation. They're after Gen Z. And so if these stats continue, they will grow up in an even more post-Christian culture than we live in today. These are the realities that our kids are facing. In the Bible, there's a generation that came after Joshua. And if you're not, if not familiar with Joshua, uh, in the Bible, he was the leader who led Israel into the land that God had promised them. And he was, when you think of someone who is uh, a religious man of God, someone who is, is good and upright and does the right thing, you can think of Joshua. And, uh, and there's a whole book in the Bible about him called Joshua. But what I want to do is, is we're going to jump to the book right after that, Judges. And we're going to look in Judges chapter 2, where it kind of gives uh, a synopsis of Joshua's life. We're going to start in verse 6. I'm just going to read here. After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to their own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and the elders who outlived him and who had seen great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the land of his inheritance at timnath Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. After that, whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, Another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. A generation grew up right after Joshua's generation. A generation that we just read there that served the Lord right till their their deathbed. Upstanding, upright, had sincere, wholehearted faith. And yet when they passed, the generation behind them didn't even know the Lord or what he had done for Israel. It's, it's pretty sobering. You know, I, I think when we think about Israel and we think about this generation, we're like, what, what happened? Where was the disconnect? Were they just, was Joshua's generation just not telling the stories of what had happened? I don't think so. I think they were. In fact, when it says that they knew not the Lord or what he had done for Israel, I don't think 
that's talking about in their, their minds. I think it's talking about in their hearts. See, the reason I, I say that is because Israelite culture was a very um, orally driven culture. Their tradition was handed down verbally around the tribal campfire. And so the generation would have heard um, from Joshua and, 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 and his generation about the, the walls of Jericho falling down. They would have heard about the day that the sun stood still. They would have heard about all of these amazing and incredible things that God had done. But somehow, some way, it didn't connect with their heart. And so we need to, we need to ask ourselves, how did this whole generation of God-fearing servants and leaders leave behind a legacy of spiritual indifference? There's a biblical scholar named Arthur E. Kundal, and he shed some light on this phenomenon. He says, each generation must enter into its own living religious experience. It cannot continue on the spiritual strength of past heroes. And the same is true for us today. So, you know, sometimes we can, we can fall into the trap of believing that just because something is, is meaningful to us, it is going to be meaningful to someone else. We need to remember that, that what God did 20 years ago, while of profound significance in my life, and no doubt in the lives of, of you in this room, for a generation who has not experienced the love of God, it doesn't mean anything to them. There's this disconnect. You see, in order for every generation to carry on the spiritual vitality of the former generation, they must first experience God for themselves. They must experience God for themselves. He must not just be the God of my mom or the God of my dad or the God of my grandparents. He must be my God, my Lord, my Savior in order for there to be meaningful faith. Simply put, every generation must own their own faith. So the question of of absolute eternal significance falls to us this morning. And that is how can we make room for the next generation? How can we create space for them to encounter the living God? How can we remove the barriers that trip up young people without compromising our faith, without compromising the gospel? See, if we, if we ignore the question of how do we engage with the next generation it's, and, and just hope that those questions go away, it's not the question that's going to go away, it's the next generation that's going to go away. And so the question of how do we engage with the next generation is a question that must be asked. And so one practical way this morning that I want to suggest to you, challenge you, that we can help the next generation is by removing barriers between them and Jesus. By removing some things that, that, that we unintentionally put in their way. You see, reaching the next generation requires an incredible amount of intentionality. Because we have our own preferences, we have our own ways of doing things, we have the own way that we think, and, and we have our own way that we encounter God. And so for us to, to actually step outside of that takes an incredible amount of work, an incredible amount of tensionality. But with the help of God, with the help of the Holy Spirit, we're able to take down some of these barriers. And so this morning I just have three, three barriers that each and every one of us can, can tear down. The first barrier is the curse of knowledge. So I'm going to do a little bit of, of a social experiment to demonstrate this. I'm going to tap out a song that you all know. 
All right. I want to see if you know what it is. Happy birthday. How many of you knew it was happy birthday? Okay. About maybe 10, 10 of you, maybe 15 tops. All right. Quite often, that's the curse of knowledge. Those of you who knew that song were singing it in your head as it was playing. See, you had inside information as to what was happening. Sometimes our attempts at communicating with people is nonsensical tapping because they don't know what's going on inside your brain. They don't have the backstory. And sometimes when we come to, to a, a generation, we think that we're, we're communicating to them well. We think that when we're bringing the gospel to them that it's making sense and it's clear. But really, uh, despite our best intentions, sometimes we're just tapping nonsensical rhythms because they don't understand what, what you understand. They don't know what you know. There's a whole generation that has no concept of sin or grace or judgment. No idea what any of those things mean. For many people in this, the, the world today have no idea who Jesus is. For, for maybe the more educated, they know that he was a historical figure, or some people might think that he's a myth, but really he's just a blur. And so when you come up to someone and you say, hey, did you know about Jesus? They, may, they might think, why are you telling me about your friend in Mexico? See, when it comes to reaching a culture, especially the next generation, explanation is the new evangelism. See, we can't just start with, this is the Bible, and this is what God says to you. You need to start with, this is a Bible. It tells the story about God and us. Let me tell you a story that's in here. See the difference? You know, just to, to t show you that I'm not crazy, I've got just a few... Um, Real personal examples from my life to illustrate this. I went to Bible college with a, with a gentleman. He was older than I, I am or still is older than I am. But he didn't grow up in church. And the first time that he went to church, they had communion. And he thought it was snack time. And he didn't know why no one was explaining what was going on at snack time. A few years ago, I had a girl come to our youth group at Bethel. And the very first time that she had ever heard of Jesus in any context other than a swear word was at youth. First time ever. A few weeks ago at youth, I asked the, the kids, 25 kids in attendance if they uh, had heard the story of Jonah. About five of them raised their hands. See, we, we aren't living in a world that knows the Bible anymore. See, we need to, you need to understand that, that even though Josh, the generation that came after Josh was a generation, maybe they had the stories handed down to them. There were no tribal campfires for Generation Z. There was no one to tell them about what Jesus had done. And so we're, we're, we need to peel back the curse of knowledge and start at the beginning. Explanation is the new evangelism. In the Bible, there's, there's two very... Uh, popular sermons in the book of Acts. Two very popular sermons. You might be familiar with them. You might not. That's okay. Either way, it'll work out. The first is in chapter 2. There's a guy named Peter. And God's Holy Spirit has just come down and incredible things had happened. And he has a huge audience that he has to explain what is going on to. And 
It tells us in Acts chapter 2, verse 5, who his audience was. It says, Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. Peter's audience were Jews. Peter was Jewish. They had something in common. They had the scriptures, or what we would now call the Old Testament. They had that in common. So all Peter had to do, he said, hey, look here. This is what's happening today. Hey, look here. What you already know, this leads to Jesus. Boom, 3,000 people got saved. Pretty awesome. Fast forward to Acts 17. There's a, another guy named Paul. And he's preaching, but only he's not preaching to the Jewish crowd in Jerusalem. He's preaching in Athens. And not just in Athens, he's preaching at Mars Hill, at the, the cornerstone of philosophy for the, the world at that time. And he's, he's speaking to them. And where does he start? Does he start with like, hey, you know the scriptures? No, they don't know the scriptures. So instead he says, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. And then moving from that common ground, from something in their culture, he comes to them and he says, okay, this is how this points to Jesus. And I think quite often the problem that we trip up on today is that we're still talking to people like it's Acts 2 when we're in an Acts 17 world. See, we're still talking to people like they understand and they know the Bible and, the, and, the, and, and Christian morality and, and all of these things, but they don't. You know, we, we, we quite often assume that people even know, like, our, our church culture and, and how we do things, but they don't. And so we need to peel it back and remember that explanation is the new evangelism. The good news is that the good news is still good news. We just need a little bit more groundwork to get people there than we used to. You know, a few years ago, most people had grown up in Sunday school, and whether or not they were Christian or not, they had a, a, you know, a, a Judeo-Christian ethic. All it would take was the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Boom. Saved. Right now, we have a generation who feels the conviction of the Holy Spirit, who knows that something isn't right, but they have no language for, for sin or grace or who Jesus is. And so we need to explain it to them. So explanation is the new evangelism. The second, the second barrier that often comes up that we put up for the next generation is our own personal fear of rejection. You see, this journey of, of discovering who Jesus is begins with a simple invitation which is actually one of the most remarkable trademarks of Generation Z, is that quite often we, we think that they won't accept an invitation, that they don't want us, you know, older people to come up to them and be like, hey, um, come grab a burger with me or something. I don't know, because that might be weird. But they actually are craving invitation. They're actually craving adults who care about them and love them. And so one of the biggest barriers that we put up for the next generation is actually our own personal fear of rejection. We, we assume that the younger generation will think that we're obsolete. But I know from personal experience, the only way that we will ever be obsolete to the next generation is if we make ourselves obsolete to the next generation. You know what? I, 
at Bethel, I'm, I'm a youth pastor on staff there, and, and every time I'm recruiting people, I'm giving my pitch, I always hear the same thing. When I ask someone if they want to be a youth leader, they always say, Pastor Joe, I'm afraid of teenagers. <laughs> and you know what I say to them? It's okay, I am too. <laughs> I am too. You know what? They can be scary, they can be intimidating. But the fact of the matter is that we, we can't allow our own fear of rejection to keep us back from meaningful relationships with the next generation or we'll stunt their spiritual growth. See, as different as Gen Z may be from your generation or my generation, they have far more commonalities with us than differences. All people want to be noticed. They want to be loved. They want to be accepted. They want to be invited in. Gen Z is absolutely no different at all. In fact, many young people are starving for the personal touch of invitation from someone who's older. Family dynamics alone make it clear that a, a stable, constant, non-judgmental adult influence is in short supply in our world today. So it's, it's, it's also important to note that it's not just any invitation that will work. It's an invitation into relationship. And that's really important. Invitation into relationship. I want to tell you another story from the book of Acts. Yes, I like Acts. I come from a Pentecostal church. I think that's fitting. But another story from, from the book of Acts is in chapter 9. And uh, Saul, uh, a persecutor of the church, found Jesus. Or rather, Jesus found him on a road to Damascus. And completely transformed his life. And so, so Saul ends up coming to the church in Jerusalem. It completely changed. But everyone's freaking out and they don't know what to do. Because this is the guy who rounded up Christians by the dozens and threw them in prison. And they didn't want to let him in. They thought it was a trap. And so they're, they're keeping him at arm's, at arm's length. Until one guy, Barnabas... This older guy who has really well, like, well standing in the church, lots of respect, goes up to Paul and takes him under his wing, brings him to the apostles, to the church leaders in Jerusalem, and personally vouches for him. Tells the story of how, how Saul was converted. Tells the story about how he's found Jesus. Barnabas puts his own reputation on the line, his own safety on the line, and he, he comes to this younger man, Saul, and says, he's good. You can trust him. And then Barnabas, and that relationship didn't end. Barnabas went on to mentor Paul as a missionary until eventually Paul outgrew Barnabas and became the, one of the greatest, well, the greatest missionary ever alive and the person who wrote most of the New Testament. But it all started with one Barnabas. It all started with one person who was willing to take a risk on someone younger. And I'm not saying that the younger generation are persecutors of the church. But what I am saying is sometimes I feel like we don't know what to do with them. We just kind of hold them at arm's reach and kind of let them do their thing because we don't really know what to do. But if we would be brave, if we would be a Barnabas... If we would go up to that young person that you know and invite them into a relationship, it only takes one. You see, in order for 
a relationship with God to be real, it must be experienced. And this is where we run into our next barrier. Our next barrier is not letting go. And this one's very closely tied to our insecurities, isn't it? You know, when I think about not letting go, I think about bedtime at the Bot household. You know, you're, you got, I got Loveland over my arms and she's clinging onto the doorpost, right? It's bedtime. She's holding on for all her might, right? See, a large part of making room for the, genera- for the next generation is giving them responsibility. Making room and, and not just giving them token tasks, but tasks that actually matter. You know, I think quite often we look at the, the next generation and, and we say, man, like, like what, what's, what's their problem? Why aren't they rising up? Why aren't they taking position in the church? I had a moment like that at, at our church, our youth group. We have a, a group called Leaders in Training. And how this, this, this started wasn't with, with vision. It started with conviction. Don't you just love that? I was, I was uh, pastoring the youth there for a while and I just, I could not get anyone interested in, in student leadership. The, the Christian kids were too busy with, with their extracurricular activities and they had no desire whatsoever. The rest of the kids in our, our youth group weren't Christian or they were barely Christian in any way imaginable. They weren't leadership material and I was frustrated and I just came to God and I was like, God, why haven't you brought me any leaders? Like I've read the leadership book. It says to only take the best and then to train them. I was like, what's, the best don't, don't want to lead. What, what am I supposed to do? And the Holy Spirit said to me very simply, he's like, Joe, you don't have any leaders because you haven't trained any leaders. And I thought to myself, wow, that's a really good point. <laughs> and so what, I, what came next was leaders in training. I let anyone and everyone come into youth. I set the bar really low to come in and then really high to stay in. But the whole point of that story is that we all have control issues. But if we want to see the next generation experience God, we have to give them opportunities to serve and to grow. Because a faith that's not lived out will soon wither and die. Isn't that true? You just get so full of God's love and so full of passion and if you don't have an outlet for it, you just, it just dies. See, if we don't move over and allow the next generation to serve in positions of real responsibility, we will stunt their spiritual growth. We cannot allow comfort to cripple us. We cannot allow the comfort and familiarity of our lives and our worship services to take precedent over the salvation of the next generation. In order to reach a next generation, we must communicate to them in a way that they can understand. Because the face of the next generation is worth far more, far more than our personal preferences and comfort. Pastor and and author Andy Stanley contends, what is the faith of the next generation worth? I say it's worth everything. I built a bed the other day. No big deal. I like to think of myself as a a woodsman. I don't know. It was pretty exciting. But part of that process, 
of building a bed was, was taking the old bed out and bringing the new bed in to, through this narrow hallway. And one of my children very, very graciously and very kindly left a really sharp toy on the hallway floor. And I'm carrying one of these heavy pieces and I step on the toy. And with all the grace of our Lord and Savior, I put down the bed and I patted my son on the head and I said, don't do that, please. No, that's not what happened at all. I put down the thing, I picked up that toy, and as hard as I could, I just threw it into the other room. Not my finest moment. But here's the thing. Church friends, listen to me. When it comes to making room for the next generation, when it comes for, to removing barriers for the next generation, we need to pick up, throw, kick, push aside whatever it takes. Anything that is in the way, any barriers that can possibly be moved have to be shoved out of the way so that young people can get to Jesus. Because that's what it's all about. That same anger that, that should, should rise up in us of, of just this, this, this holy anger that says, you know what, my grandkids need Jesus, my kids need Jesus, and I'm going to do whatever it takes. I'm going to squish over as much as I can. I'm going to give up as much of my, my, my preferences and my comfort. I'm going to put my pride on the line, and I'm going to invite a young person out for, for coffee or buy them a, a $20 latte or a hamburger or whatever it takes. Because they're worth it. They're worth everything. In the words of our Savior and Lord, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. See, Jesus didn't come so we could, could play church. He didn't come so that we could live comfortable lives. Instead, he, he pursued all of us. He chased us down from, from eternity past till now. God came down out of eternity into time. And he pursued us all the way to the cross. How far are you willing to go for the next generation? See, if Jesus has done that for you and for me, I think we need to make as much room as we can for everyone else to hear about our Lord and Savior. There's an entire generation waiting to hear about the God who is friend of sinners. Ben, you can come up and get ready if you'd like. See, when it comes right down to it, every generation must own their own faith. And this is where it gets really hard. We can't force our faith on them. We can't just take a Bible and shove it down their throats until they get saved. It doesn't work that way. Sometimes it, it seems like it would be a whole lot easier if it was. But they must encounter God personally. They must make a decision to know Him themselves. No one can do that for them. We can't do that for them. I can't do that for my kids. But God help us if we are a generation like Joshua's generation who left behind a legacy of incredible spiritual vitality. Victories in the past. Absolutely incredible victories. Miracles. God moving in the most powerful ways ever. Friends, listen to me. I don't want my legacy to be how good of a, a pastor or a preacher or, or a spiritual leader I am. I want my legacy to be the next generation 
I want my legacy to be my children loving and serving Jesus. Because if our legacy is the next generation, our mountaintop is just their valley. And they'll go deeper and farther with Jesus than we ever could have dreamed going. And so when we're, when we're faced with, with generation, generation Z and how bleak things might look, I want you to remember one thing this morning. And that is the good news is still good news. That Jesus is still on his throne. And the God that moved heaven and earth to be with you is the God who is moving heaven and earth to be with the next generation. And we just have a decision of do we want to be on board with what God is doing. I'm just going to pray and, and we'll go into to a song. Father, I just pray. I pray right now just on every heart. God, that you would put a young person that we know on our heart. A grandkid a child, a neighbor kid, whoever it is, Jesus, I pray that you would speak to us and challenge us to reach out and to welcome them into a relationship with us, but most importantly, into a relationship with Jesus. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.